Warning, the following episode of The Bone Garden contains graphic descriptions and mature language. This episode may not be suitable for everybody. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Salutations, scary skeletons. Howdy ho, you hallowed homies. Hello, freaky friends. It is your spooky girl, Kate. And welcome, welcome to episode number seven of the Bone Garden podcast. If you've listened to the show before, welcome back. And if you're new here, hello. I am a lifelong true crime and paranormal enthusiast, and I'm on a journey to learn about all sorts of creepy freaky stuff. Now, before we get into really much of anything, I just want to address the elephant in the room. If you've listened to the show before, then you know that it has been a while (laughs) since I've put up an episode. I did put up an announcement on the Apple podcast thing, like like an episode, but not really an episode, um, kind of explaining part of why I've been gone for so long. So I just want to touch on that really, really quickly just to clear the air so that people aren't like, oh my god, what's star Because she disappeared for two weeks. So here's the thing. So I initially planned on taking one week off from the show. That was, that was planned. There were a few things that were going on in my life where I honestly just needed like, like some time to just actually get shit done and, and really just take care of myself. So the first major thing that happened was that my brother's partner moved in with us and she is amazing. She actually listens to the show. So she'll probably hear this at some point and be like, oh my God, that's me. Um, I absolutely love you to fucking pieces. I am so happy that my brother has found somebody that makes him so happy. You make me happy too. Cause you're, we're just, oh, I love you. Just that's, we'll talk about it later, girl. It's okay. It's fine. Um, The second thing that happened during my uh, original one-week hiatus is I got a cat. Her name is Athena. She is a ragdoll. She's about a year old. And honestly, she's basically like having a fucking toddler. (laughs) Um, She gets the zoomies. So if you hear any weird background noise, it's not the ghost in the attic. It's just her being a literal fucking moron. (laughs) But she's great. I love her. I'll try to take some nice pictures and put them up maybe on my Twitter if you guys want to see her. Um, but the third reason why I needed that hiatus, it's probably the most important, is if you've listened to the show before, I've very briefly touched on it and I believe in transparency, so I don't give a shit. I'll just tell you outright. I struggle a lot with my mental health. And when I took my week hiatus, it was because I was in a horrible headspace Um, I was incredibly stressed out all the time, um, on top of doing this podcast, which in and of itself is a full-time job. Um, I also have a regular full-time job, which I used to pay my bills. Um, those two things combined with the fact that I was trying to, like, maintain my personal life, which was suffering, handling stuff at home, um, it was just, it was becoming a lot for me, and it was too much for me to handle, So I ended up taking that time to, you know, take a step back 
get some perspective, catch my breath. And then I was like, okay, ma'am. <laughs> She's already being rowdy. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to be able to take some time. And when I came back, I wanted to be able to produce content of the quality that I feel like you guys deserve, which believe it or not is high quality. I hold myself to very high standards. Um, but so that happened. So I took a week off from doing the podcast. And so this episode, following that whole schedule, um, this episode was supposed to come out on the 10th. Um, so I woke up the morning of the 10th and I felt like I was literally run over by a train. I, I had never been so suddenly sick before. Um, I had a god-awful headache, which is saying a lot coming from me because I actually get chronic migraines. So I had a horrendous headache. I literally had no strength in my body. Like, it took everything in me to get up. Um, so I was like, oh my god, maybe it's just like a bug that's floating around. I, I tried to brush it off and minimize it. Um, I had some Benadryl, took some Tylenol, plenty of fluids. And then a couple hours later, I'm like, oh my god, this isn't getting better. This is getting worse. So then I started getting nervous. Um, I didn't know what the fuck was going on with my body. <laughs> and I finally caved and I took an at-home COVID test and I came up positive. For the first time since the panorama began, I tested positive for COVID-19. And let me just tell you, like negative three out of 10 do not recommend. I was miserable. There were days when I would wake up and I literally couldn't talk. My throat was so raw from coughing. Um, and then I would have some like upswings. But so when I made that announcement, that was toward like the very beginning of my having COVID. And in the back of my mind, I was like, oh, you know, if, if I feel better, I can still record that episode and like put it out the middle of the week. Like they'll understand. I tried to sit down and record this episode four times. And every time that I was recording, when I was, like, really struggling with the Ronas, I was losing my voice in the middle of the episode. Like, my voice would just give out, and then my body was like, huh, it's time to go to sleep. So, unfortunately, I had to put this off as long as I did. But just know, when I made that announcement, I was very, very upset. Um, I was less upset about the fact that I had covid and more upset about the fact that this episode would have had to wait. So to any of you that sent me incredibly kind, supportive messages, I did get them. <laughs> I I am so blessed to have such an amazing group of listeners, an amazing group of friends. All of my friends have been just so warm and loving and just putting all of my worries at ease because it is very hard for a new podcast there's a lot of pressure on newer podcasters to stay consistent and keep uploading like on a regular schedule so that people can find you and all that other analytical shit. But I I so appreciate each and every one of you. I am still a little bit nasally, so I apologize. I know there's still a little bit of strain in my voice. I just got my voice back two days ago, but I'm working on it. <laughs> So we are going to jump into this week's episode, and I wanted to cover something a little bit closer to home for me. I'm a Massachusetts native, born and raised, I still live here, 
and I really wanted to cover a case from Massachusetts. But every single time that I researched, like, haunted Massachusetts, Massachusetts serial killers, they're like, oh, did you mean Lizzie Borden? Did you mean the Salem witch trials? Which I definitely want to cover at some point in the future, but everybody and their fucking mom has covered those two topics. And I wanted to do something a little bit different, something a little less well-known. So... We are going to be covering, drumroll, Honora Kelly, also known as Jane Toppin, also known as Jolly Jane. She is a female serial killer from Massachusetts. Now, I know we've covered a lot of female serial killers. We will be getting into the fellas. Don't worry. But she is fucking wild. And... This case especially hits home for me because it's about a nurse. And I have a lot of people in my family that are in healthcare. So I was like, oh, a serial killer for me? Oh, and they're a nurse? Just like all of these people in my fucking family? So we're getting literally the best and the worst of both worlds. So flip on your nightlight and strap in. Because here we go. So Honora Kelly, who is more commonly known as Jane Toppin, was born March 31st, 1854 in Boston, Massachusetts, to her parents, Bridget and Peter Kelly. Bridget and Peter were originally from Ireland, but they immigrated to the U.S. to build a better life. Honora was the youngest of four daughters. So there was Honora, Delia, and Nellie, and I think there was one more whose name I actually wasn't able to grab. But unfortunately, Honora's mom died from tuberculosis when she was just about a year old. So in case you don't know, tuberculosis is horrible. It's a bacterial infection. It affects your lungs. And gradually, it just gets worse and worse. Usually what happens toward the end of life is that a patient suffering from tuberculosis, they end up losing a ton of body weight. They are incredibly frail. They really, they just can't take care of themselves. They can't really breathe on their own. But what happens, at least to my knowledge, I am not a doctor. Um, my sources come from Google. Is that people with tuberculosis... They actually develop these like blisters or lesions in their lungs. And eventually over time, those lesions will rupture and it causes an inflammation in your lungs that fills your lungs up with fluid. So essentially, tuberculosis patients drown. And it is, it's literally a fucking nightmare to go through. Every single case that I read about honestly breaks my heart. Um, it's not really as common nowadays because we're fortunate enough where we have treatments, we have preventative measures. But back in the day, anybody could get tuberculosis. Little kids, teenagers, adults, seniors. Nobody was fucking safe from tuberculosis. And really, once you had it, there wasn't much that could be done. So getting tuberculosis was a fucking death sentence. So... After Bridget's passing, Peter was basically left to raise his children all by himself. Honora's family was already incredibly poor, 
and being a single father just made things even worse for Peter. Peter was a local tailor, and he was commonly known by neighbors as Kelly the Crack, as in Crackpot, because he just, he was just a weird dude. He was eccentric. He had this weird, like, erratic behavior. Um, And apparently he was also a violent alcoholic, and he was suspected of abusing his children. I couldn't really find anything like a police report, any testimonies from the neighbors because it was so long ago. But allegedly, Peter went on to have a psychotic break, and he actually sewed his eyelids shut using needles from his workplace. Peter was later committed to an insane asylum, and Honora and her sisters were put into the care of their paternal grandmother. So, flash forward a few years. In 1860, Honora and one of her sisters named Delia, they were surrendered to a local orphanage called the Boston Female Asylum. I know it was called an asylum, but that was kind of just like a fancy word for orphanages sometimes. it's It was a weird thing that they would do. So... The asylum's mission was to raise young girls until they were 10 years old and then find suitable homes for them. At the time that they were surrendered to the asylum, Honora was only six years old and Delia was eight. There really wasn't much written in their case files that I could find, but one staff member had noted that the girls were, quote, rescued from a very miserable home. The specifics aren't really known about how the Kelly girls were treated in the orphanage, what they really went through. But in general, orphanages in the 1800s were fucking horrible. I mean, most of them were severely overcrowded because of the mortality rate. Back then, it was very, very common for people to die from things like yellow fever, typhoid, or tuberculosis. And it was also really, really common for parents to just outright surrender their children to orphanages because they just weren't in a financial position to support a child. That or the fact that maybe they were suffering from addictions. Um, They just didn't have a stable home for their kids. So they made the decision that they thought was best for their children by surrendering them to this facility that could take care of them until they could be placed into a proper home that could actually fulfill the duties that a child needs. Now, just because they're being surrendered to an orphanage, that doesn't mean that it's all sunshine and rainbows and everything's great and perfect. That's very seldom the case for orphanages back in that day. And unfortunately, it's very seldom the case these days because things are just awful. And okay, so back then, when a lot of people were surrendering their kids to orphanages, or the kids were just outright homeless and they found shelter in these orphanages. They were very, very overcrowded. There were very rarely enough beds for people to sleep in. A lot of children were forced to sleep on the floor. And if beds weren't hard enough, they had a lot of fucking mouths to feed. Like, there was a study done in New York City in 1850. New York is what, a few hours from Boston, I think. I've I've never been to New York, so I don't know. But in 1850, there was a case study done in New York. And back then, New York City had a population of 500,000 people. Of those 500,000 people, between 20 and 30,000 of those people were homeless orphans. So it was hard enough to find an orphanage because they were just few and far between during that time. 
So you finally find a place to live and it is fucking packed with kids, screaming kids, crying kids, kids that are just confused and scared. And that's oh, it's so fucking sad. And with these orphanages being so overcrowded, sanitation was basically non-existent because the staff of the orphanage usually couldn't like keep up with the care of, I don't know, 150, maybe 250 kids in a facility that was maybe meant to house, like, 80 or 90. So, life in an orphanage was horrendous. A lot of the orphanages just outright reeked of, like, urine, feces, and fucking vomit. And especially in a time where things like yellow fever and tuberculosis are running rampant. Sanitation, just in general, is incredibly important in fighting off diseases, preventing diseases, and also, not having access to water where you can bathe and just cleanse yourself, that really fucks up your mental health as well. So, put it in perspective for you, these two kids, Hanora and Delia, they are dropped off in a place that is most certainly jam-fucking-packed with children. They probably didn't have a place to sleep. They probably rarely got the opportunity to eat. And... Because there were so many kids, there was probably very little supervision. And so these these two girls who are just, they're struggling to cope with the fact that A, their mother is dead. B, their father has been institutionalized. And C, all they have is each other. They have enough to worry about. They shouldn't have to worry about, you know, where they're going to sleep, what they're going to eat. Oh, do we get to base today? No, maybe we'll bathe in like a month when we have the opportunity. I couldn't begin to fucking imagine the mental strain that was going on for them. So according to the National Library of Medicine, losing one or both of your parents, especially at a young age, that can severely stunt your ability to develop coping skills and it can lead to emotional issues like patterns of self-isolation and undiagnosed depression. So to recap for these two poor sweet little babies, they are completely abandoned. All they have is each other. They are in this destitute, disgusting fucking facility that promised to take care of them. And all I can do is speculate and say that that didn't happen. But... The entire point of the Boston Female Asylum was to give these kids somewhere to live until they could find a new home. And luckily for Honora, in 1862, she was placed in the care of the wealthy Toppin family. She had hoped that Delia would be joining her, but the Toppins picked her and her alone. Later in life, perhaps because of the lack of care and a healthy childhood environment, Delia developed a substance abuse issue. She suffered heavily from alcoholism, just like her father, and would support herself financially as a sex worker. One of Honora's other sisters, Nellie, she was eventually committed to an insane asylum. So, at this point, all Honora has is herself and yet another house full of strangers. So, while she's in the Toppin household, Honora worked mostly as a housekeeper and a servant, and she waited hand and foot on Mrs. Anne Toppin and Mr. Abner Toppin, as well as their young daughter, Elizabeth. There was a lot of back and forth in my research about whether or not they, like, officially adopted Honora, 
they very well could have just gone to the orphanage and said, hey, I want that one. But what I can confirm is that the Toppins forced Tenora to change her name because there was a very, very negative stigma around the Irish during that time period. So Honora Kelly became Jane Toppin. And from here on out, just to keep things nice and easy, Honora is Jane. So in order to keep up appearances, Mrs. Toppin conditioned Jane to give a new backstory to anybody that asked about her. As far as anybody was concerned, Jane was the daughter of an Italian immigrant whose parents tragically passed away when she was young. Jane got along pretty well with Elizabeth, but there was a little bit of a an issue. So Elizabeth and her adopted family, they would constantly remind her that she was adopted and that she wasn't really part of the family. Now, Jane's new family would often poke fun at her heritage, and they would also throw the adoption in her face. As horrible as it sounds, and I really hate to say it, Jane wouldn't have had half the opportunities that she had if the Toppins didn't adopt her. And everybody knew it. But regardless, Jane was an intelligent, like, super curious girl, and she just always seemed to have, like, an amazing fascination about the world around her. So the Toppins' neighbors and their family friends, they would often entrust Jane with babysitting when they had affairs to attend to. So she was obviously just very sociable and she was incredibly uh, charismatic and trustworthy because you wouldn't trust just any stranger with your baby. As far as school goes, Jane fucking excelled. She was very, very smart and she knew it. She was never really very popular. She didn't really have a ton of friends. But other kids in school did know her, or at least the version that she told them. So Jane would go on to tell the other kids that her father was actually a famous sailor, and he and his wife, her mom, they actually passed away at sea, and her older sister married a prince. She would boast about her incredible family to anybody that would listen, and this pattern of compulsive lying and masquerading would continue uh, well into her adulthood. It would also seem that Jane was a very good listener. She would listen very closely to her teachers as far as lectures go. But when she listened to her classmates, that's when things started to get a little bit saucy. She was very conniving. So on the surface, she was a very sweet girl, very smart. But she knew how to push people's buttons. So she would go on to actually exploit her classmates' weaknesses And she would either rat them out on different secrets that they might have told her in confidence, or she would just start a whole ass rumor and blackmail people for the fun of it. Now we're going to jump forward quite a bit. We're going to jump forward 23 years, and we're going to catch up with 31-year-old Jane Toppin walking into Cambridge Hospital in Massachusetts. Now why is she there, huh? What the fuck's going on? Jane wants to become a nurse. For a lot of people, becoming a nurse or just getting into the healthcare field in general, it is an incredibly humbling experience. There are just some amazing, just pure-hearted people out there, and all they want to do is heal the sick. They want to see you on your worst day and make that better, because nobody goes to the hospital when they're feeling great. They go there when they're sick, when they're injured, when they're dying, and amazing healthcare staff will take care of you, and if they can't make you better... They will comfort you in your final days. Jane did not have this intention. I will tell you that right now. And shit's about to get fucking dark. 
When Jane first got into Cambridge, everybody adored her. And this is the horrifying thing about this woman. This is why she's so fucking dangerous. Is that she can put on a face. She can put on whatever character she needs to be for you. It's totally fucking bonkers. But so as far as the other hospital staff were concerned, Jane was polite. She was charismatic. She just, she never seemed to have a bad day herself. She was always in a good mood. And so that's how she earned the nickname Jolly Jane. Jane seemed to really gravitate toward elderly patients, you know, the ones that really couldn't do anything on their own. On the surface, she just really liked old people. You know, she would give them extra special care, you know, checking in on them regularly. And to anybody else, she's doing an amazing job. You know, she's making sure that these people, these especially vulnerable people, are getting the care that they need and then some. But actually, she had some fucked up shit planned and I don't think I can prepare you. So... Jane's fascination with the world around her didn't just stop when she was a child. That followed her well into adulthood, and it continued to follow her through her journey through Cambridge. She loved understanding what made people tick. Now, while Jane was doing her residency at Cambridge, she would use her elderly patients for experiments. It wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna see, you know, if you like hibiscus tea or green tea. No, 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 no. One more time. No. She would forge medical charts and she would give her patients a cocktail of drugs. Now her favorite one, her real uh, modus operandi was mixing morphine and atropine. Not everybody knows what those are and I'm about educating people. So I looked it up. And I'm sure the FBI is really having a fucking hoot looking through my search history. But so atropine is a drug that is normally used uh, to treat, is it brachycardia? That's the lower heart rate. Um, and it can also treat stomach issues. So side effects for atropine include things like an increased heart rate, blurry vision, confusion, drowsiness, and fatigue. So, yeah, it might fix your uh, your high blood pressure, but it might make it worse. Also, you might pass out. That's, that's kind of how the, the pharmaceutical industry is. I'm not a fucking doctor, obviously. <laughs> now, morphine is probably one of the best known medications um, out here in the U.S. It's a pain med. It is a very, very powerful pain medication. It's highly addictive. It's an incredibly controlled substance. Um, and morphine is normally given either orally or through an injection. To my knowledge, Jane was giving patients injections of morphine, but I could be wrong. I couldn't find an actual confirmation of how she was administering her morphine, but injection just seems to be the thing back in that day. The side effects from morphine can include things like drowsiness, dizziness, vomiting, and other things. Needless to say, and I'm going to say it anyway, do not do, uh, I'm not doing a bit. I'm dead fucking serious. Do not mix medications. Don't fucking do it. Ever. Never, forever, ever, ever. Unless the doctor says, 
oh, you know, I'm giving you this prescription, but if you need it, you can take Tylenol. You can take this other medication that you have. Unless a doctor tells you, do not do it, because mixing medications can cause irreversible damage to your body. It can also fucking kill you. So do not mix medication. Um, the only reason that I'm bringing up what these drugs are is because I believe in educating people. So just remember, just because we talk about it doesn't mean you should do it. Like, just just don't fucking mix medication. It's It's horrendous. I know people that work in emergency rooms where teenagers and fucking children have been rushed in because they mixed medication or they took too much of a medication and those kids didn't make it. So please don't mix meds. If you are currently mixing medication, please seek help. I can leave some uh, resources in the show notes, but don't mix meds, okay? It's really dangerous and I care about all of you, so just don't do it. Anyway, you guys see the trends with morphine and atropine, right? The whole dizziness, confusion, drowsiness, all that shit. Jane wanted to see how each patient would react to her cocktail. Sometimes she would adjust the dosage. So maybe this person was given more atropine. Maybe that person was given more morphine. But regardless of how much of each drug she would give her patients, they would usually pass out pretty quickly. Jane would often stand over her patients while they're laying in their beds, and really any nurses walking past them wouldn't think much of it. It was common back then, and it's still very common now, um, for nurses to do regular check-ins of their patients. If you've ever stayed in the hospital, like, after a surgery or, like, for an extended period of time, especially overnight, like, if you spend one night in a hospital, you will not fucking sleep. (laughs) So these nurses will do check-ins Usually, I want to say hourly, but they check in. They make sure that, you know, if you are awake, hey, do you need any water? Do you need anything to eat? Um, They'll also do some blood work in case, like, they have to send anything to the lab. But these nurses are very vigilant, and they will keep an eye on these patients, make sure that they have everything. But so any other nurse that is walking past a patient's room, maybe they're checking in the actual room itself, all they're going to see is Jane Toppin, this compassionate, amazing nurse in her residency, just taking care of their patient. This is where shit gets kind of weird, and then it gets really, really, really fucking dark. So, as if knocking her patients out wasn't bad enough, Jane also had a proclivity for climbing into her patients' beds with them. She'd go snuggle. Have you ever laid in a fucking hospital bed? How? Okay, I can't even fit my fat ass in a hospital bed. I can, it's just not comfortable. Imagine fitting two whole ass, grown ass fucking adults in a bed. I mean, the patient was unconscious, so they probably couldn't complain. Um, but Jane would lay in the bed with them. They would lay together for a couple minutes. Sometimes it would be about an hour or two. But while she was laying in bed with... (laughs) Fucking hate saying that. While she was laying in bed with her unconscious, sickly, elderly patients, she would stroke their hair, she'd kiss their forehead, and sometimes she would just talk to them. Or she would sing them fucking songs. No! (laughs) 
when I researched this, oh my god, when I researched this woman, I was like, yeah, she's just the nurse that kills people, right? Nope. Nope. Not one fucking bit. Um, mother of God. I am going to give a trigger warning for this next part. Um, we are going to be briefly touching on SA. Um, so if that makes you uncomfortable, if that's a hard stop for you, feel free to skip ahead probably about 20 seconds or so. Just want to give you guys a warning because it's not great what she did. So I'll give you a second and then we'll move on. So skip ahead now if you need to. I totally understand. Okay. For those of you that stayed, Jane also had a tendency of sexually assaulting or molesting her patients while they were unconscious. I couldn't find any sources that confirmed if Jane ever raped any of her patients, but we know for certain that she was sexually assaulting them. Um, it seemed like Jane's track record of assaulting her patients might have had an actual purpose because Jane appeared to derive her own sexual gratification from assaulting them. So we can't confirm specifically. When I look up Jane Toppin, as far as a motive goes, it technically says unknown. It also mentions like sexual fetishism, but we don't know why she did these things. Inevitably, when you're fucking with dosages and giving really anybody a weird cocktail of drugs, especially an elderly person, eventually somebody's gonna die. But the real kicker is that healthcare just really wasn't the best back then, and sometimes people just didn't make it. So Jane ended up flying under the radar for a very long time, but her track record of her willingness to help people, her compassionate nature, that actually got her uh, recommended to go work for the Massachusetts General Hospital in 1889. Now, the Mass General Hospital is incredibly prestigious. It's very well known. So Miss Jane Toppin heads on over to Mass General Hospital. And she basically just keeps doing what she was doing. She would give patients a cocktail of atropine and morphine, or she would just outright fuck with their already prescribed medications. She would see what would happen to them. She would see how it would affect their respiration, their nervous system, their heart all of this other stuff, but it didn't last for long because the people at Mass General realized, hey lady, you are giving wrong dosages to people. In fact, these charts don't look legitimate. These look like you just filled them out on the fly. You cannot handle patients here. So she was promptly fired um, for giving out incorrect dosages and negligence. And then realizing, oh, well, <laughs> that didn't work out. I'm going to head back over to Cambridge Hospital. So she headed over there and she kept doing her own thing for a while. But then they finally caught on to what the fuck she was doing. Not specifically um, the SA or the fact that she was doing it out of, out of a malicious curiosity, but they knew that she was fucking with the medications. So eventually Jane Toppin is fired from Cambridge Hospital for administering medication recklessly. So she's been fired from the most prestigious hospital in Massachusetts. And then she is also fired from Cambridge Hospital. Well, 
Jane wasn't done. She wanted to keep, quote unquote, treating patients. She wanted to keep caring for people. Gigantic fucking air quotes around that. But you know what? <laughs> Hospitals are too rigid, man. You know, they, they got their paperwork. They got their charts, their diagrams. I don't want to be tied down to an institution. No, 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 no. I want to go my own way. So then Jane decides I'm going to become a private nurse because I don't want to work in a hospital and have to answer to people like lead nurses or anything. And hey, private nurses were all the rage back then because a lot of people, they just didn't want to go to a hospital. They wanted to be taken care of in the comfort of their own home. And with Jane's nature of being so, so friendly and having this chameleon-like personality where she could just morph and transform into whatever type of a person you wanted her to be, she was incredibly popular and she had a ton of clients. And everything seemed fine for a while until those clients start dropping like flies. So as she's working as this home care nurse, Jane would go on to take care of dozens of people. While we only have a confirmed list of I believe it is 12 people. Um, Jane did later brag to people that she'd kill closer to 100 victims. But for a lot of them, everything seemed fine at first. They would have their own set prescriptions that they would take between like one and three times a day. It depends on the medication. But then gradually, these patients started getting worse. The sad reality was that Jane was just fucking with their prescriptions. So maybe they would get a little bit more of a prescription, maybe a little bit less of another prescription. And then sometimes she would just sprinkle in her own medications that she had stolen from Cambridge Hospital and Mass General. Now, her methods actually evolved from the classic injectables that she was used to at Cambridge and Mass General. And she would also dissolve these medications into water or drinks. So any tablets, I know there are morphine tablets, she would maybe drop a couple of those into some water, give it a little mix, let it sit. And then when she gave these patients some water to take with their medication, well, you're also taking two doses of morphine. Over time, her patients would become sicker and sicker and sicker. And eventually they would either fall into a coma or they would just outright die from these overdoses. One of Jane's favorite methods was to actually poison her patients to the brink of death, and then she would genuinely nurse them back to health. She would take care of them hand and foot, and then all of a sudden when they're feeling better, she's like, it was a miraculous recovery. God, I am such a good nurse. Oh my goodness. Hey, you want some water? Yeah, no. Uh, you can just like ignore those mysterious flecks in it. That's fine. It's cool. It's, it's a mineral water. It's fine. She would also commit petty theft and she would steal money and valuables that would usually just go unnoticed by her patients because, you know, they're too busy being actually fucking sick to really notice you stealing, like, a ring and some spare change. But her first confirmed victims were her landlord and his wife. So, 1895, Jane is staying at a boarding house in Cambridge and that boarding house was maintained by Israel Dunham and his wife, Lovey. Jane first poisoned Israel, and that happened over a span of days. And eventually he passed away on May 26th, 1895, at 83 years old. 
After Israel's death, Jane decided to move into the house and take care of Lovey. You know, she's an older woman. She can't really do things on her own. Her husband just fucking died, so she needs somebody around her to comfort her. And unfortunately, a couple years later, Lovey met a similar fate. She mysteriously passed away on September 19th, 1897, at 87 years old. Imagine living to your 80s, and then this fucking, this fucking demon bitch just comes by and takes you out. I, oh, I would haunt the shit out of her. I, I really hope that she got what she deserved. I already know how this ends, but I hope she fucking suffered. The next victim that we have was an unnamed victim. I couldn't find this person's name. This woman was actually a widow. Her husband had passed away years prior. And when she was looking for a home health care nurse, her granddaughter found Jane and fucking adored her. She's like, oh my goodness, this woman is so kind and she's so patient and I wouldn't trust anybody else to take care of my grandmother. Jane went on to take care of this woman for a while, and eventually she passed away. But Jane told everybody that it was due to natural causes. I, it's sad because there's really no way of knowing, you know, oh my god, this person whose listing is in the paper, oh, they're secretly a fucking serial killer. But just the guilt that I would feel by recommending a person and then, oops, Grandma kicked the bucket. That's, I would, I couldn't live with myself. Now we're going to jump forward a few years to August of 1899. And this is probably the most fucked up one. So Jane contacts her adopted sister, Elizabeth Toppin, who at this point, she'd gotten married. So her last name was Brigham, I think is how you say it. So she'd contacted Elizabeth and said, hey girl. I'm going to go on vacation to Cape Cod. You should come with me. If you aren't from Massachusetts um, or just New England in general, Cape Cod is... How do I word this? Because people from the Cape are a breed all their own. Cape Cod is a very wealthy area. It's I, it's not an island. I think it's a peninsula. But it's very well-to-do. At least nowadays, it's very... La-di-da, there's a lot of uh, spots to go boating and fishing and and swimming. It's very fancy. It's very classy. Um, It's a very popular vacation spot out here. But so she reaches out to Elizabeth. Hey, girl, I'm going to go on vacation to the Cape. You should come with me. And Elizabeth is like, oh, my God, I haven't talked to you in so long. Like, absolutely. Let's go hang out. And so they rendezvous, they go to Cape Cod, and everything is great at first. In fact, things are jolly. (laughs) So sorry. Um, But Elizabeth really had no idea about what the fuck was going to happen to her. See, because the thing is, is that when they were children, they got along pretty great. But like I'd mentioned earlier in the episode, Elizabeth and her family constantly made fun of Jane for her heritage, where she came from. And it wasn't just like, haha, you're Irish. It was actual fucking slurs. Um, slurs that even I don't like saying. Um, I am part Irish myself. But it was just years and years of being tormented and mocked and looking at this girl 
who she actually had a family. She had a mother that cared about her. She had a father that was present and that was taking care of the family. He wasn't off, you know, getting drunk and uh, abusing his children. He didn't get sent into an asylum for sewing his eyelids shut. So in Jane's mind, Elizabeth is this perfect person and she got everything that she ever wanted. And all Jane wanted was a family that she could be safe in. And she wanted her sisters back. And she, all she had was herself. But at that point, going through the system and being forced to change her name, she didn't even know who she was anymore. So that all led up to a fateful moment where Elizabeth's husband, Ormel Brigham, receives a telegram from Jane. And that telegram informed him that Elizabeth had fallen gravely ill during their vacation. But Jane, being a nurse, was going to try her best to nurse her back to health. So Jane poisoned Elizabeth for a long time. I believe that they got to the Cape toward, like, the middle of August. Um, Elizabeth didn't die until August 29th. She was tortured potentially for weeks. But she did the the normal ditty where she dissolved medication into water. Um, Especially if you're feeling sick, you want to stay hydrated, you want to keep drinking water. Well, what if the person that's giving you water is also mixing in morphine, atropine, all these different opioids, things that are slowing your heart, increasing your heart rate, fucking up your respiration. But Elizabeth didn't know. She was just like, oh my God, I am so ill. So Elizabeth suffered for weeks. And then finally, Jane kills Elizabeth with an injection of strychnine. Strychnine is... I don't even know if there's an actual purpose for strychnine, but if somebody has strychnine, if they're injected with it, if they're exposed to it, it will lead to respiratory failure and brain death, usually within, I think it was about 15 to 30 minutes, but that entire time you are convulsing, you are gasping for air. It is horrible. Um, Elizabeth's death was most certainly malice. There is no other reason why Jane would have sought out Elizabeth specifically. But the entire time that Elizabeth is laying there dying from the strychnine injection, Jane is laying with her. She is petting her hair, comforting her, and singing her songs. And I I don't even have a rebuttal for this case, um, especially for, for this victim. Um... Imagine letting somebody into your life, and it's it's very hard um, from my understanding, uh, when your parents adopt somebody, like they, they adopt a new child into the household. It's very hard because Elizabeth was an only child, and so her family was, whether they liked Jane or not, they were splitting up the attention a little bit. So Elizabeth felt like she wasn't really being seen Jane felt like she wasn't being appreciated. She felt like she was being tormented. But over time, I mean, it's it's very hard adjusting to having somebody new in the home. And imagine sharing your home with somebody. She had known Elizabeth. Let me get my little, let me get my abacus out really quick. I'm going to do some math. All right. So I did the math. Um, Elizabeth and Jane had known each other at this point, for about 37 years. 
imagine knowing somebody for 37 years of your life and then they torture you to near death with a cocktail of medication that they most certainly stole from the hospitals where they were working, where they were also torturing fucking patients. 37 years. That is... I haven't even been on this planet for 37 years, so I have nothing to compare that to. Nobody deserves that. I mean, there are some people out there, you know, awful, horrible human beings that maybe deserve an ounce of that. But 37 years, and you couldn't have talked about it. I'm sorry, there is no justification for uh, for harassing somebody about their culture. But 37 years is unfathomable. <laughs> so after all of this happens, oh my God, I can't. This case is, it breaks my heart. So eventually a doctor arrives to check on Elizabeth and obviously she was dead by that point. It was ruled that Elizabeth had slipped into a coma and then later died from an apoplectic stroke. So... While it seems like this murder was just for revenge, Jane was also, needless to say, very jealous of Elizabeth's life. Um, at one point later on during her trial, she was quoted as saying, quote, probably if I had gotten married and had children, I wouldn't have killed all those people. So with that being said, we kind of have a motive, but not really for Jane. She's, she's a fucking enigma. She... She is one of those killers where I am genuinely confused about them. But so Jane decides that she's going to go after Elizabeth's husband and she's going to try to throw herself into his arms so that he'll marry her because bitches don't mind sloppy seconds, I guess. So Jane moves in with Elizabeth's husband, Ormel, and his sister, Edna, and his housekeeper, Florence. Jane's initial plan was to just weasel her way into his house and his life, but the main way that she was planning on doing that, you know, with years of being this uh, indentured servant to the Toppins, hey, I'm good at housekeeping. I'm going to be your housekeeper. Well, no, you're not because we already have a housekeeper. So Jane begins the process of poisoning Florence, the housekeeper, and on January 15th, 1900, she mysteriously passes away. So at this point, Ormel's sister Edna is getting really suspicious. Now, Florence was only 45 years old. She still had, what, 30, 40 years ahead of her. But things are just not lining up for Edna. You know, Florence was in perfect health before Jane moved in. And now she's mysteriously dropped dead. Like, what the fuck is going on? So Edna starts kind of digging around, you know, doing what she can. But eventually, Jane figures out that Edna's up to something. And I'll be damned if you're going to stop me from getting married to my uh, adopted sister's husband. No motherfucking way. So Jane begins lacing all of Edna's drinks with morphine tablets. And then Edna passes away about a year later, on June 19th, 1901. So at this point, Jane thinks, oh my god, I'm in the clear. You know, Ormel has lost 
everybody that's close to him. He lost his wife. He lost his sister. He lost his housekeeper. Holy shit, I'm going to get with this man, even if it fucking kills me. So Jane basically shoots her shot, like, hey, or, well, what do people from the 1900s sound like? Uh... Hello, I would like to... I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> That's never going to happen again. I, pr- I promise you there are going to be no more voices in the show. <laughs> so anyway, and also it's 1901. That's not that long ago. So uh, Jane approaches Ormel and says, Hey, you know, you and me. <laughs> and Ormel's like, no, that's not going to happen. I'm not interested in you. Uh, Go fuck yourself. And Jane absolutely loses her marbles. She decides that if she can't have him, then nobody will. He'll just go join his fucking wife in the grave. So she begins the process of poisoning Ormel. But he's been onto her kind of the entire time, you know, after uh, Florence died and Edna was like, what's going on? And then Edna died. Like, she's leaving these weird fucking breadcrumbs everywhere. So Ormel's getting a little bit suspicious. But he's also getting sicker and sicker and sicker. So he goes to the cops. He says, you know, hey, man, there's something going on in my house. Everybody has died. Like, I don't know what's going on. I think it's this new girl named Jane. But they couldn't really take, you know, him just saying, oh, yeah, it's this lady over here. So for some reason, because they didn't have any evidence, the whole thing is just dropped. Um, To my knowledge, they never made any, like, checks on Jane to see, like, hey, lady, uh, so your name came up in uh, a lot of uh, murders in this one fucking house. Um, Also, your sister-in-law is dead or your uh, your adopted sister is dead. Like, do you know about that? Like, nothing like that happened. So Jane just vanishes. She up and leaves. She's like, well, there's nothing for me here. I can't get Ormel. So I guess I'm just gonna go Ormel over there. So (laughs) then she moves on to the Davis family. Now, the father uh, or the man of the house, Alden Davis... He was actually a Confederate soldier that moved to Massachusetts, and when he was up here, he met his wife, Maddie. Alden was met with a lot of kind of pushback when he'd moved up to Massachusetts for a number of reasons. First of all, he sided with the Confederates during the Civil War, Um, and for those of you that missed out on your world history class, um, Massachusetts was with the Union So we don't take kindly to the Confederates, um, as if they're still around. Um, But no, so he received a lot of pushback from that because people knew that he fought with the Confederate army. Um, And the second thing was that Alden's religious beliefs really contradicted the standard Catholicism from Massachusetts. Back then, uh, just standard Catholicism was very, very popular Still to this day, if you come up to Massachusetts, I mean, we are a little bit more uh, diverse. We have synagogues and all of that good stuff. But for the most part, it's all Roman Catholic. You might find a Lutheran church. You might find a Baptist church here and there. But for the most part, it's all Catholic churches. But so a lot of people didn't like the Davises really from the start. But 
they kind of tried their best. They tried to keep going. You know, you can't really fix your past. So the Davises open like a bed and breakfast hotel in kind of Delio. Um, and they're trying to draw revenue in. They're trying to uh, to invite people from the area to say, hey, see, I fought with the Confederate army, but I'm not a total asshole. So this inn opens and Jane decides to move into a room. And apparently she'd moved in with friends. They were briefly touched on uh, in some of the sources that I researched. And those friends' names were Melvin and Eliza Beadle. However, Jane didn't really have the money to pay off the costs of the room that she was staying in. So she'd racked up about $500 in debt, which that doesn't really sound like a lot nowadays. I mean, that's like a couple car payments. But back in the early 1900s, that's a lot of fucking money. So Jane's kind of just putzing around. She's trying to figure out what to do. And then the lady of the house, Maddie Davis, she confronts Jane. She's like, hey, like, this isn't funny. We need our fucking money. (laughs) So Maddie confronts Jane and she's like, I need that money. You have to give me the money that you owe us. And Jane's like, okay, lady, uh, well, why don't you come in and have a drink with me? We'll sit down. We'll talk. I can, like, uh, break down my current situation. You know, we can figure out a compromise. So Maddie goes into Jane's uh, room slash living quarters, and Jane offers her a glass of water. And it wasn't just any normal water, because shortly after she has it, Maddie collapses and Jane takes her to like a back room or like a guest room in her suite. And she basically just tells Maddie, oh my goodness, you just collapsed. You are incredibly sick and you need to be cared for. So Jane takes care of Maddie and takes care in gigantic fucking air quotes for nearly a week. And she gives her doses of morphine and a variety of different medications that are being mixed into water. Um, Not too sure if she gave Maddie any uh, injections, but I mean, if you're fading in and out of consciousness, you aren't really going to notice if somebody sticks you with a syringe. But eventually Maddie dies on July 4th, 1901. Now at that point, Jane decides to move into the Davis house and she's going to take care of Alden and the rest of his family. So, for some reason, Jane didn't want to kill Alden right away. Um, you know, he she had already taken his wife, so I'm not sure why, why she was being so hesitant about killing Alden. So, the first person, once she gets into the house, so she kills Maddie, she moves into the house, and then she poisons the youngest daughter named Genevieve. As far as Genevieve went, Jane told the neighbors that she had actually been suicidal and that she had killed herself using arsenic that she'd taken out of a cabinet. Um, honey, that's, come on, that's. But so Genevieve passes away on July 30th, 1901. So after Genevieve dies, then Jane moves on to killing Alden, um, keeps up the same charade the gradual poisoning over a couple days, maybe a week or so. And so Alden passes away on August 8th, 18, uh, sorry, 1901. And when Alden dies, he is aged 64. So then Jane moves on to Minnie. So 
The night that Jane injects Minnie, Minnie's father-in-law had actually stopped by the house. And when he was walking through, he was trying to figure out where everybody was. So he's walking down the hallway and apparently the door was either cracked or actually open because at this point, Jane doesn't really fucking care, you know, to shut the door because there's nobody home. So the father-in-law walks over and he sees Jane that's just standing over Minnie's bed holding a syringe injecting her. So shortly after that, Minnie passes away and she passed away on August 13th, 1901. Wow, she moved fucking quick toward the end. So after Minnie's death, uh, word definitely got to the father-in-law and he's like, hang on a second. I saw something motherfucking suspicious. I don't think that she, you know, passed away naturally. Let me see. Minnie was 40 years old. Even back uh, in the early 1900s, 40 was a very, very young age to pass away. So the surviving members of the Davis family, mainly the father-in-law, he goes to police and he demands toxicology reports on the victims trying to figure out what actually caused this. And he especially pressed them for a toxicology report on Minnie. So the toxicology report comes back from Minnie and that confirms that she had been poisoned. At that point, the father-in-law is like, I fucking knew that something fishy was going on. I knew that Jane wasn't giving her Tylenol PM. There is something not right going on here. The father-in-law then tells the police everything that he knows. He gives them a description of Jane Toppin. And after that, police begin tailing her and they follow her everywhere that she went while the detectives investigated. So the police are tracking things down. They're trying to tie together these loose ends to figure out, could this have been Jane? Could it have been just a very unfortunate string of misfortune that's following her? But eventually they think that they have enough. So on October 29th, 1901, Honora Kelly is taken into custody under the suspicion that she had murdered the members of the Davis family. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why didn't they just take her into custody before that? Well, here's the thing, and I want to preface this by saying that I am not a cop. I am not a lawyer. I'm just a weird bitch from Massachusetts that really likes true crime. But so, to my knowledge, what happens is in order for you to be properly arrested or detained, they have to have concrete evidence um, that would pin you to that crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And if they don't have that, then there's nothing that they can do and they can just release you. But the thing with the whole Jane Toppin case is that they had enough evidence to at least get her on the Davis family murders. Um, in the very least, they had enough to convict her for the murder of Minnie Davis because of the father-in-law's testimony because he actively saw her injecting uh, Minnie with a syringe and then Minnie later passed away and it was confirmed that she died of poisoning. So they at least had enough on Jane to get her for that. But it was just from there they had to kind of kind of work backwards and figure out, okay, well, we know that she at least might have been involved with the murder of Minnie Davis. We need to figure out if she was involved in the other murders of the Davis family. Now, it was initially thought that Jane was doing these murders by using arsenic, but there really wasn't any proof that Jane was using arsenic in any of the murders. 
The tricky thing with arsenic, and again, I'm going to say what I said earlier, don't use this information just because we talk about it doesn't mean that you can do it. Not whatsoever. Don't fucking do this. But the thing with arsenic is that if you uh, administer it in small enough doses, when that person uh, eventually passes away, it doesn't normally show up in a toxicology report. Instead, it's just like a a death of natural causes. It's a, a mysterious death for no fucking reason. But even if Jane Toppin had used arsenic to kill anybody, the fact that she was uh, poisoning people over a very long period of time, the arsenic would have left their system and it wouldn't have been able to show up in any toxicology reports. That and the fact that she was mostly killing elderly people, that wouldn't have really raised enough eyebrows for them to be like, oh, this 85-year-old woman randomly passed away. I bet she was poisoned. Let's let's do a toxicology report. Whereas if Jane had killed, say, uh, a healthy, like, 20-something-year-old, that raises all the red flags because you're 20. You shouldn't really have any complications. So somebody that is a lot younger, they're more likely to end up getting a toxicology report done versus, like, an older person. Because when you're older, you know, things can give out. You're like a rickety old boombox and sometimes, like, the CD just... (laughs) Sometimes the CD just skips. (laughs) God. If you're older and you're listening, I'm so sorry that I just called you a (laughs) boombox. But anyway, so once Jane was in custody, the first thing that they wanted to do was make sure that she was competent that she was uh, aware of what she did, of the fact that it was wrong. They wanted to figure out if it was premeditated, which honestly, if you're poisoning somebody for for days or fucking weeks, that's premeditated. You are you are planning that out. You you know what you're doing. You you have the well with all to understand that what you're doing is wrong. But so when Jane was interviewed by a psychiatrist, The interesting thing is that Jane had told them that she is afraid of death. That's really fucking ironic, uh, considering the fact that she uh, eventually confessed to killing a dozen people and then later recounted that and told her defense lawyers that she'd killed more than 30 people. But she was suspected of killing, I think it was closer to 100. But anyway, so Jane is talking to a psychiatrist uh, about everything They're trying to figure out if she is mentally competent uh, to stand trial. And while she's talking to the psychiatrist, she mentions that she is afraid of death. And then she told the psychiatrist that she'd killed a dozen people. And then she also confirmed that, yes, she derived sexual pleasure from the murders. um, But she really didn't seem to be upset about what she'd done. She didn't really show any remorse. She didn't really seem to have an understanding of right from wrong. I mean, in Jane's mind, hey, they're older anyway. They're going to die soon. Like, I might as well have my fun. But there is there is so much to the psyche of Jane Toppin. Just the fact that she was bringing people basically to death and then saving them and giving herself credit and saying, oh my god, I saved your life. I'm such a hero. There's there's a lot wrong with her. Um, and we'll we'll get into that in a minute. So, Jane Toppin goes to trial in November of 1901, and when she appeared in court, she was wearing her nurse's uniform. 
the thing that's really hard for me um, to kind of fathom is that people that she had worked with and her former patients, you know, the ones that she hadn't fucking killed, they were sitting on the steps of the courthouse waiting to hear the verdict. They were there in support of Jane. They loved Jane. They they really saw... I'm trying to figure out how to word this because it's obviously not their fault. They couldn't accept that this woman, this bright and cheery woman who, to them, she seemed like she was coming into work every single day and she was doing her best to save people's lives and she showed so much compassion and they couldn't, they couldn't imagine her doing this to anybody. They couldn't imagine her doing it to one person let alone a dozen, let alone the 30 or or almost 100 that she'd claimed that she'd done. So these former co-workers and former patients of Jane's, they would actually get up on the stand and they would testify. They would vouch for her. They would say how, oh, she was such a wonderful person. And every single day that she came to work, she showed so much compassion for her patients. She took genuine care and interest in them. And for those people... I don't think that they're wrong. I don't think that, you know, they were, that they were lying to save Jane's ass. That's just, that was the side of Jane Toppin that they saw. That was the side of Honora Kelly that they saw, was this woman who her entire life, she knew that she had to adapt. She had to transform into whatever people needed her to be. And that's what a lot of serial killers do that we will definitely get into because that whole pathology is so fucked and it's so terrifying but it is so fascinating but so when jane was actually testifying you know she appeared in court wearing her nurse's uniform and she was saying things like well i just been doing my job all along there's only so much that a person can do sometimes people just can't be helped and they die but that's that's not my fault i'm just doing what i can it gets very tricky because here's the thing when you are found not guilty by reason of insanity, it's, and again, I'm not a lawyer, so don't, don't take my word as gospel, but Jane certainly knew what she was doing. A hundred percent. I, I will believe that till the end of time. Jane Toppin, yes, she had some issues. She had some psychological issues, a thousand percent, but she was definitely all there. She definitely understood what she was doing. There was premeditation. We don't exactly have a motive because there can be so many motives for Jane to have done what she did. Um, some of her motives, I I can speculate. Um, the sexual fetishism of, you know, her caring for people. Um, there's a certain type of serial killer called an angel of death or a death angel where they are a healthcare worker or a caretaker and their whole thing is, oh my God, like your life is literally in my hands like a baby bird. And if I wanted to, I could shut my fist and I could snuff you out. Angels of death or death angel killers, they, they just go on a fucking power trip, really. Because they see themselves as this uh, almost like an authoritative figure where they realize that they have some power over this person. But Jane understood that. A hundred percent understood what she was doing. 
She knew that it was wrong. She did it anyway. Jane's moral compass might have been a little bit fucked up. But I mean, you can't look at killing somebody and say, oh, that's fine. I mean, I know that some people do do that. But Jane was trained in a hospital. She had all of these amazing influences around her. These people that were teaching her how to actually care for people. You know, what you do, do and don't do. She had mentorship. She had some semblance of stability. But she just threw that out the window. And there was actually a quote from, uh, I think it was the court proceedings, where somebody said, quote, she convinced the doctors that she was insane by saying that she was sane. And that can really be picked apart a bunch of different ways. So she was insane by saying that she was sane. And by that, they're basically saying... She thought that what she did was fine, and that's what makes her crazy. Now, the insanity plea, I mean, for some people, it honestly is the best option. They just, they didn't understand what was happening. Jane definitely fucking knew that. She knew what she did was wrong. She, she has built this entire character around understanding people. So she understood the person that she had to be for the court for them to call her crazy. But she knew every single button that she had to press. She knew how she had to act. She knew that she had to shut off her uh, her emotions. Honora Kelly was ultimately tried for the murder of the Davis family. She was eventually convicted of 12 murders, um, but the initial sentencing was for the Davis family. Honora Kelly, I fucking hate saying this. Honora Kelly was found not guilty of her crimes by reason of insanity, and she was later sentenced to spend the rest of her natural life in the Taunton State Psychiatric Hospital in Taunton, Massachusetts. When she was told her verdict, she started laughing. This woman, who most certainly killed a dozen people, but she could have killed between a dozen and uh, about a hundred fucking people. She's told that she's going to go to a psychiatric hospital for the rest of her life, and she is laughing like a little fucking child. You killed a lot of people. These people had futures. Yeah, some of them were older. Um, I think it was uh, Israel was 83 and Lovey was 87. I think those are the oldest uh, victims of hers. But some of these people had their entire life ahead of them and you fucking took that from them and then you're going to you're going to act like you're like you're mentally incompetent to stand trial and then you're going to go to a, a psychiatric hospital and that just that really flakes your croissant. I don't I don't understand this woman. But so, Honora Kelly, also known as Jane Toppin, also known as Jolly Jane, she began her stay at the Taunton State Psychiatric Hospital. And while she was there, by all accounts, she was wonderful. One of the, one of the head prison guards, or the, the head orderly, I think is the word for it, they adored her. They said that 
Honora slash Jane was very friendly and she was very, very kind and they got along great. And she never had an issue with another person at the psychiatric hospital. Although I did find an account that when uh, Honora slash Jane, um, when she'd initially uh, gone to the psychiatric hospital, she refused to eat for a while uh, because she was afraid that somebody had poisoned her food. So you're afraid of death when it's happening to you. Not, not when you're killing all these other people. But, oh my god, don't poison my brisket. So she's in the Taunton State Psychiatric Hospital. And then she also starts writing romance novels. Apparently, that was like a little tidbit that I found about her. Was that she was writing a romance novel. Um, I've got no idea what it was about. And I don't fucking care. I don't want to read anything that this woman has ever wrote. And I never will. And honestly, I don't think she's going to be publishing anything anytime soon. Why? Because on August 17th, 1938, at age 84, Honora Kelly, also known as Jane Toppin, also also known as Jolly Jane, succumbed to complications from pneumonia and died. She died alone. She died gasping for air. And nobody gave a fucking shit about her. I don't mean to be callous. You know what? You know what? I take that back. I do mean to be callous. I do mean to be a bitch about her. Because here's the thing. Jane Toppin, she's really fascinating. I loved researching this case, but I literally couldn't get her out of my head. So the thing is, and it's the really fucked up thing, most killers' goal is to just kill you. Like, period, end of story, that's it. But the fact that Jane, A, took on the role of a nurse, a person whose entire job is to save your fucking life, the fact that she earned the trust of so many people, she she used being a nurse as a way to weasel her way into your life, into your family's life, into your fucking house, and then she just... She would torture you for days, sometimes a week, sometimes weeks, plural. And the fact that she would basically bring you to the brink of fucking death and then just stop poisoning you and then actually take care of you with the training that she'd retained from going through her actual residency as a nurse. And then she had the fucking gumption to say, I'm a hero and I saved you. I, I saved you. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. What's that? Like, you couldn't breathe. Like, you you thought your heart was going to stop. No, 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 no. I saved you. It fucking excuse me. Are you shitting in my ass right now? Honoric fucking Kelly. You saved the people that you were fucking poisoning to death. And you called yourself a goddamn hero. Get the fuck over yourself. You know what? You know what? She's not even worth being upset over. I know that there is a very special place for you in the afterlife, and I hope that you're nice and fucking toasty. You fucking she-demon. You fucking... How fucking dare you? You're gonna use being a nurse as a way to fucking kill people. And, like, 
we're going to cover another case kind of similar to this in the future um, with Mr. John Wayne Gacy, the biggest sack of fucking shit that I've ever had the displeasure of reading about. You're going to use a position that makes people comfortable and you're going to exploit that. And then you're going to lay with their dying fucking corpse and you're going to comfort them like you've done all that you fucking can. Seriously? Fucking seriously. I honestly, and I try to be as positive as I can when I talk about anybody. So I will positively say, Honora Kelly, I hope that you, you literal waste of fucking oxygen are burning to an absolute motherfucking crisp. You know, even though I've read these notes over quite a few times, I did not expect my great comeback to the show to be this fucking blood boiling. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I I think I've said everything that has popped into my mind. Um, Jiminy Christmas. Well, all you guys, gals, non-binary pals, I hope you uh, enjoyed, didn't enjoy, I, I hope that you got something out of this week's episode about Honora Kelly, also known as Jane Toppin, also known as Jolly Jane, also known as a literal pile of human waste. <laughs> oh my goodness. It's one thing when you're writing down your notes, because you can kind of distance yourself from it. But then when you're actually reading it out loud, it is awful. Um, the one thing that I did want to do before I do my little outro is I know that we only touched on uh, a few of the victims. But I would like to just go through the list of the 12 known victims that we have for Honora Kelly, um, just to give them some respect. So, the victims of Honora Kelly are as follows. These are the 12 victims that have been confirmed. Israel Dunham, and he died on May 26th, 1895, at age 83. Lovey Dunham, who was Israel's wife, passed away on September 19th, 1897, at age 87 years old. Elizabeth Brigham who was her adopted sister, who passed away on August 29th, 1899, at age 70. And then we have a couple other people who, unfortunately, I didn't have the opportunity to go over. So one of them is Mary McNear, and she passed away on December 28th, 1899, at age 70. And then we have Florence Calkins, who was Elizabeth Brigham's housekeeper. And she died January 15th, 1900, at the age 45. We also have another patient named William Ingraham, and he passed away January 27th, 1900, at age 70. Sarah Connors, who is also known as Myra, 
She was a patient and friend of Honora's, and she passed away February 11th, 1900, aged 48. Then we've got Maddie Davis, who was Alden Davis's wife. She passed away July 4th, 1901, at the age of 62. Next, we've got Genevieve Gordon, who was also called Annie, and she was the daughter of Alden and Maddie Davis. She passed away July 30th, 1901. Alden Davis, he was Maddie's husband, Genevieve's father, and Minnie's father. And he passed away on August 8th, 1901, at the age of 64. Then we've got Mary Gibbs, who was also called Minnie. She was the daughter of Alden and Maddie and the sister of Genevieve Gordon. She passed away August 13th, 1901, at the age of 40. And lastly, we've got Edna Bannister, who was Elizabeth Brigham's sister-in-law. She passed away June 19th, 1901, at the age of 77. So there we go. Those are all of the victims. Reading them out is actually upsetting, but I would like to do this from here on out for um, any killers whose list of victims are known. I would like to read those out and pay respect to them. So I am sending all of my thoughts and prayers and positive vibes to the family members of the victims. I know it's been a while, but they deserve it. So anyway, we are going to be doing a paranormal episode next week, and I'm very excited. I've already begun my research, so stay tuned for that. If you don't have me already on social media, all of my social media information will be in the show notes. Also, if you like the show, if you want to hear some more and you're on Apple Podcast, please make sure that you follow it. There's a little plus symbol. That'll make sure that you get any notifications the next time that I post another episode. As always, I'd like to give a very special thank you to my bestest friend in the whole wide world. Their name is Pippin. They are a digital artist that did the cover art for my show. If you need any art done, please feel free to go check them out on Twitter. Let them know that I sent you. Their Twitter handle is at A-R-C-H-E-R-K-A-S-A-I. They are amazing and I totally recommend them a billion percent. And as always, make sure that you guys, gals, non-binary pals, stay safe, be kind to each other, and stay the fuck away from Honora Kelly, also known as Jolly Jane. Bye, guys!